If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you pull it out and let's go to the book of Psalms this morning. We are headed to Psalm 51. If you need a Bible, feel free again to grab one back there and take it and keep it and use it. Uh, today we are finishing out our summer series. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel with a couple of stops in the book of Psalms to help fill out our understanding of the book in a series that I've entitled, Give Us a King. There are many kings in our world. In that day there was a human king, but the reality throughout 1 Samuel is that only God is the true king and that our mistakes begin in life when we reject God as our true king and we look to any lesser human king. The last three weeks, though, I've sort of had a sermon series within a sermon series that I've titled, Pursuing a Heart for God by Pursuing the Heart of God. And we've looked at some of these passages and really seen the way that Scripture goes after our hearts, that personal relationship with the Lord, and that in order for us to draw near to Him, we need to begin by understanding His great heart for us. So last week we were in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we looked at one of the first stories of King David before he was king, a very famous story about David and a guy named Goliath, and that God calls us to have hearts of faith, hearts of faith that trust him not only and most importantly for salvation, but for every other thing that we may need in life. I decided to sort of bookend that experience by looking at Psalm 51 this morning because Psalm 51 is very much the opposite. It is both, they are both stories in David's life, but we really see two opposite ends of the spectrum. If 1 Samuel 17 and the, book, and the story of David and Goliath uh, is what I would call a mountaintop faith moment where David trusts the Lord and he sees victory in that moment. The, the giant Goliath is certainly defeated. God defeats, and defeats the enemy and protects his people. Here, we're going to look at the opposite. Um, in Psalm 51, this is a prayer of repentance by David as a result of what we can honestly say is probably the worst moment in his life. Uh, I would describe Psalm 51 as a faith in the valley bottom type of a moment. It is the exact opposite of what was happening in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He has failed, and he has failed big time. This is incredibly applicable for us, because what happens to you? What do you do when you fail, when you sin, when you reject what you know God has called you to do, or who he has called you to be? What do you do when you mess up? And what we're going to see this morning is David, for a season in his life, turns his back on God. He runs to sin in a major way. But in Psalm 51, we see the beginning, we see the process of God working in his heart and David remembering that not only does he need to have faith in God for moments like Goliath, he needs to have complete faith in God's ability to forgive him, to restore him, to bring him back to life and relationship. It is God's grace that saves us and it is God's grace that changes us. Psalm 51, uh, throughout my teenage, college, and even adult life, has been an incredibly profound passage for me, one that when I frankly have sinned and struggled, sometimes in bigger ways, sometimes in smaller ways, I have gone to Psalm 51 and walked through this passage and found in it great encouragement when I have been struggling with very real guilt and shame. It is a passage that I have gone to when I have felt like my heart was wandering from God, much like the prodigal son story that we see in the New Testament. 
Um, it has been a passage that has encouraged me and strengthened me when I hit those moments where I go, I don't know if I want to keep fighting against sin. My heart is in a place where I don't know if I want to pursue the Lord. Psalm 51 has been God's word in my life to draw me back to him in a couple ways. And we'll see these bear out in this passage here this morning. First of all, Psalm 51 always reminds me to trust in God's amazing grace, that that is the foundation of my life. It also enables me to admit more freely that I'm a sinner, that I mess up. And it reminds me that God knows everything about me already. And so I can come, says the scripture, in boldness asking for his mercy. It reminds me to remember that what I have needed in my life, and really what I rely on every day, is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, that he died to pay for my sins. And it has reminded me to rely not on my own power to do better or to try harder, but on the Holy Spirit's power. It is he who in me gives me new life and gives me power and strength to obey and follow hard after our good and faithful God. So let's look at Psalm 51 now. I'm going to read the entire psalm to us to begin. It is 19 verses in Psalm 51. Hear now the word of the Lord. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's take a moment and let's pray to our good and loving Heavenly Father this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect. We thank you that it is filled with your love, your grace, and hope. And Father, in particular, we see that it is filled with second chances. God, this is the reality of our sin, but it is so much more the reality of your mighty and powerful, life-changing grace. And so we ask that you would pour that out upon us afresh this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Four ways this morning as we walk through Psalm 51 that this passage teaches us to turn our hearts back to the Lord. 
Number one, first of all, we see trust and hope in God's mercy and grace when you sin. Trust and hope in God's mercy and grace when you sin. This is abundantly clear in the very first two verses of David's Psalm 51, and it immediately should conjure up in us a reminder of a very important question, which is, what do you do when you royally screw up, when you completely blow it, when you know that something that you have said or something that you have done was, was really wrong, or maybe not even that really wrong, but you just know this, this was not what the Lord had for me. What about far worse when, and we all find ourselves in this situation, we keep doing what we know we shouldn't. Whether it's a hardness of heart or we've reached that place that we feel like we can't help but give in to that same repetitive sin. I want to encourage you first by seeing the grace and mercy of our God, by seeing the sinfulness and the failure of David, who is recorded in 1 Samuel as a man after God's own heart. So if David can fail, so can we, because God's grace is that good. 2 Samuel, we've been in 1 Samuel all summer, 2 Samuel chapter 11 really focuses on the entire life of King David. And what we understand from 2 Samuel 11 is here is a snapshot of what I would suggest to you is probably the worst moment in his life. Or to use other language, this is his rock bottom moment. Not that he was any more or less a sinner saved by grace here in this moment than he was any other time in his life, but that here was a season of his life where his heart wandered from God and into some really ugly sin, and he experienced some very serious earthly consequences for that sin. Long story short, David sees a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, and David commits adultery with her. Um, I'm not preaching 2 Samuel 11 today, but I want to make one observation just from 2 Samuel 11 that I think is very helpful for us today. That is this. Little sins in David's life very quickly became big sins. He didn't expect it. He didn't plan it. I'm confident that he was surprised. But what he thought of as little, not a big deal just a minor compromise, very quickly became life-alteringly destructive sins. See, David was first guilty of laziness. We know at the very beginning of 2 Samuel 11 that he was lazy. He was supposed to go out to battle like a good king and defend his people, but he sent someone else. And that laziness then immediately gives into lust when he sees Bathsheba and sticks around for a second and a third and a fourth look when she is bathing on the roof of her house, which as odd as that may seem, was an ordinary custom in that day and time. His lust then turns apparently very quickly into adultery. And with that, we can see also his covetousness against Uriah, the husband, and his using and dehumanizing of Bathsheba. And instead of repenting to his heavenly father who loves him, which he could have done at any moment, he does what we all so naturally are inclined to do. He tries to cover it up. And so King David launches into a massive conspiracy that ultimately ends in him finding someone else to have Uriah, this woman's husband, murdered on the front lines of battle so as to cover up his sin. Covering up sin never works. 
And so God sends one of his prophets, the prophet Nathan, who goes to David, who David thinks he's gotten away with it, and the prophet Nathan lovingly but sternly says, you are the man, you are the one who has done these things, and God sees them. And David's heart is broken in that moment. What does that have to do with verses one and two? See here clearly our only hope. David's only hope in this ugly, perverse sin is the mercy of God. Whether you think that your sins are small or you think this morning that your sins are huge, our only hope is the mercy of God. Amen? Look, listen to verses one and two once again. David cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to not my record, not my abilities, but according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, remove them, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I'm gross, I'm dirty, cleanse me from my sin. You are the one who can do it, Father. Our only hope is God's mercy and all of our faith must be in his grace. Our hearts don't operate that way though. Our hearts think, I'll fix this. I can get out of this. I'll take care of this. But what we need is mercy and grace. Just so we understand, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Oh, how we need mercy. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Oh, how we need grace. We need both. And the words that David is using here in Hebrew, they carry the power of both mercy and grace in them. But I want to point you a little bit further to this word steadfast love. Steadfast love in Hebrew is the word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. If I was a really good Hebrew, I would say chesed. Really get that ch into chesed. Hesed is a word that shows up throughout the Old Testament, and what it means is it's not just God's love. It's not just a love that's unique to God, but it is God's covenant love, meaning it's a promise. It's a guarantee that God's love will not fail even when you inevitably fail. We look in Old and New Testament, who is a God of covenant promises. Hesed, love. This is what we need, a God who even when we sin again and again and again promises his forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ that he will never stop forgiving us, that he will never stop loving us through Jesus. See, there will never be a day, believer, if you have come to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, there will never be a day where God says to you, hey, I saved you by my grace, but what you've done really ticks me off today so I'm done with you. Many of us have had that experience, humanly speaking. You will never have that experience with God. There is no sin that you, believer, can commit that can separate you from his love. But what does David do here with his adultery and his murder? What do you do with your sin? You go to the cross. You go to the cross of Jesus. This is why David, even in the Old Testament, prays, blot out my sin, wash me of my sin, cleanse me of my sin, because I must live by God's promise of mercy, because once again, my self-effort has failed. Richard Phillips, in his commentary in Psalm 51, says this, while sin is far greater than our strength of will, 
Guys, our will is trash on our own. It is still only the second greatest power in the world. You understand that? Sin is powerful. It is still only the second greatest power in the world. There is a greater power. The grace of God extended to sinners who cry like David did, have mercy on me, O God. To know that his promise will not fail, even as we fail once again. Guys, God's mercy, God's grace is the source. It is the power of our forgiveness. It is the power that allows us to freely confess or admit our sins to him. It is the power to repent and turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And it is the power to change the world. There is none other like it. Number two, trust in his forgiveness as you freely confess your sin. Trust in his forgiveness as you freely confess your sin. We see this in verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 51, which I'll read to us again now. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. David's trust in grace has a specific application here. It leads him to confess his sin. Confessing your sin to God is not something that you just do that one time when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. That is a part of it, but it is not a one-time moment. And what David is showing us here. Is, first of all, David has been a believer for many years at this moment in his life, and he's showing us a little bit of what a lifestyle of confession of sin and confidence in grace looks like. The two must go together. I can freely admit my sin because I have confidence that his grace is sufficient for me. And he goes on to tell us that there is joy and peace that defeats guilt and shame that we so often feel when we just come to God and admit, God, I have messed up again. Knowing that when we come to our Heavenly Father, we come to a Heavenly Father that's not surprised by our sin, who from before the beginning of time had decided to send His one and only Son to die in our place. That's the confidence that we can come with as we confess to Him. Admitting you're a sinner to God is not hear me here, is not about earning salvation or keeping your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Everybody understands that. You cannot earn your salvation. It was and it is a free gift from God. Therefore, you cannot also lose your salvation because as we see throughout the pages of Scripture, His power, His ability to hold on to you by grace and mercy is far more powerful than your ability in your sins to push Him away. My seven-year-old, as hard as he may try, cannot get away from me when I put him in the headlock of love. It is the same with the Lord. But let me be explicitly clear here. Confession is not earning God's favor by talking to an earthly priest. Understand that? I am not your priest. Jesus is your high priest, and he is your only priest. I am your pastor. There is a difference. Confession is not earning God's favor by talking to an earthly priest 
who has no power to forgive or pardon your sin. And it is not then doing good deeds that said priest assigns you to do to pay off your sin guilt. That is not the gospel. Confession is freely admitting your faults to God in confidence of his grace and his restoring power exclusively in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With that understanding, though, I want you to see there are at least here in this verses 3 through 6, there are at least four ways that David practically shows us how we can confess or be honest with God about our sins and our struggles. The first way that he is honest here is he shows us that we can admit that what we did is wrong. See, the world, our flesh, and the devil will constantly try and tell us, I'm not that bad, it's not that big of a deal. Certainly, I'm not as bad as that other guy over there. Did you see what he did? That is not the language of the Lord. David says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. There's an incredibly refreshing honesty here, isn't there? That David is recognizing something that's really important to all of us. He's saying, I don't have to fake it anymore. And I don't have to rely on my ability to do better. I've been freed from that. I can admit freely that what I did really is wrong. Secondly, we can admit our sin is personal with God. Our sin is a personal offense against God. What the Bible teaches here, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, is reiterating a reality that I try to talk about often. Sin is serious. Sin is cosmic treason against the creator and sustainer God of the universe. It is not a small thing. David fully understands, by the way, that he has absolutely sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has certainly sinned against his entire own family. He has sinned against his nation of Israel. But the worst part about his sin is that he has sinned against a holy God. And it is the same for us. Our hearts should break when we wound a friend, a family member, a brother or sister in Christ. But we should recognize that our sin is ultimately an offense against a holy and loving God. Thirdly, we can admit God has the authority to judge us. Here's what I've come to understand about justice. We love justice when it is for someone else. Get him, God! Yeah! Mm. We don't like it so much when we deserve justice, right? Hmm. It's not such a big deal anymore. It's it's okay. And what we're saying here is God has the authority to exact justice. David is saying, your sight, your standards are real, they are valid, and I submit to them. Do you love to submit to a good and loving Father? You are justified, God, in your judgment of me because I deserve punishment for my sin and, God, my sin is not your fault. God, my sin is not someone else's fault. My sin is my fault, and so I'm coming to you asking for your grace and your mercy because I know that I need it. And finally, fourthly, we can admit that sin is a problem, once again, that we cannot fix ourselves. And David expresses this to us, that we can't fix it ourselves 
in a really interesting way. David's confession here is a powerful explanation of a theological reality throughout Scripture that we often refer to as original sin. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, original sin. David gives us an explanation here of original sin, which is all of humanity is born in sin and conceived in sin. All of humanity is conceived in sin. The moment that you are conceived, you are a sinner. By the way, that also therefore means the moment that you are conceived, you are a fully human being. You are a fully gifted, loved, created human being. But here we are seeing, David is saying, I sin because I am a sinner. It's who I am. It's my identity, not the other way around. I sin, God, because I am a sinner. I am conceived in sin, so I can't do anything about it on my own. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. See, because Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, all humanity became sinners. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so good. Because Romans 5 tells us that where Adam brought a curse of death on all of humanity, Jesus The second Adam, it says, brought life to every single person, every tribe, tongue, and nation from every era of history who will believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What Adam destroyed, Jesus has restored for us. And that leads us to number three. Number three, trust in God to cleanse your heart by the blood of Jesus. Trust in God to cleanse your heart by the blood of Jesus. If verses 3 through 6 were the explicit bad news, here now clearly once again the good news unfolding in verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 51. David says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. God, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David cries out to God knowing he is the only one who can do it? And he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Remember back in verse 1, David prayed this, blot out my transgressions. What does that mean? Remove the record of what I did. Now think about this for a second. If God is a good judge, if he is a God of justice, and we have broken his law, or David has broken his law, God cannot just remove a record of sin. That would be cosmic injustice. The penalty must be paid for sin. So what do we do? What do we do? The answer here is in verse 7. We've got to trust in God to cleanse our heart by the blood of Of Jesus Christ. And yes, I'm speaking about Jesus Christ, even though here we are in the Old Testament in Psalm 51. Walk through this with me. In verse 7, he talks about hyssop. If you don't know what hyssop is, hyssop was the plant that the Israelites would use to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice 
on a leper, a man or woman with the disease of leprosy. Hyssop was the plant used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on a leper who was to be cleansed. We go back further in the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. Leviticus chapter 14 gives us all of the details, and we're told that the high priest was to do this. The high priest was to take two live birds. If you're a bird lover, I'm really sorry about this next part. Take two live birds. One was killed, and the hyssop brush was dipped in the blood of that bird and then sprinkled using the hyssop on the leper to be cleansed. We're, we're sprinkling blood onto this person to be cleansed. The second bird was not killed. The second bird was dipped in the blood of that first bird and then released to fly away, symbolizing that there was a blood-bought freedom. The first bird is a blood-bought cleansing. The second bird is a blood-bought freedom. What was required? The shedding of blood, says the book of Hebrews. What was required? Death and payment for sin. And I hope that you can see here the bloodiness and the messiness of the Old Testament sacrificial system, that even in that, David is beginning to see something that here in the New Testament we see fully, that grace was going to cost God the Father personally. Someone was going to have to die for our sin. Listen to how the New Testament book of Hebrews, written to the Hebrews, connects these dots for us. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, if we're sprinkling blood to, to clean leprosy, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. See, Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't perfect, but Jesus shows up and he's perfect. Without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your good works are dead. They're not going to be enough. But Jesus' blood poured out for you is more than sufficient to wash away the guilt of my sin and of our sin. And David's prayer here, it foreshadows explicitly the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus Christ paid the death penalty that you and I deserved for our sins. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, lived the perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that you can be sprinkled and washed of your sin and made clean through faith in Jesus. Yes, Joe. Can we take a second and pray for you first? Let's pray for Joe. Joe is uh, battling some cancer in his head, and God is good and faithful. And let's take a second and lift up Joe once again. Father God, thank you for Joe. Thank you for the way that you love him and the way that you love each one of us. God, I pray that you would strengthen his body. Lord, I pray that you would heal him from this illness. But most of all, Father, we rejoice that you have healed him from his sin. Lord, thank you that, that Joe, like so many of us, know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And God, I pray that in that, 
that you would restore in him afresh the joy of his salvation. God, lift him up. Keep him safe. Strengthen him, we pray, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Something... So we can be in prayer. Joe has six more weeks, if you couldn't hear him. Joe has six more weeks of treatment, and we want to continue to pray for him uh, throughout those next six weeks. Yeah, I see something, a little pink thing there. Is that something he needs? A little pink doodad there. We had just looked at Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to walk us back to the idea that I just prayed for with Joe, which is that idea of joy, that idea of joy in salvation, right? For any of us, Joe, who's facing a real life and death circumstance, for any of us when we face challenges, David prays a prayer that we can identify with when he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. We get down, we get frustrated, we get angry, and we get bitter. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of of your salvation. I think all of us have been in that place where we remember sin, it leads to guilt, which leads to bitterness. And so David prays for joy. Not only that, though, he prays, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is telling us here, he's saying, listen, God, even your conviction even the consequences of my sin, even in that, there is grace. I'm thankful for what you did. I'm thankful that you have broken me to help me see what I was doing. But now I'm asking God to restore me. Restore the joy that comes only from having a heart that is close to you because of salvation. And so I would ask all of us this morning, have you experienced that? Have you experienced the joy of knowing regardless of what happens in my life, regardless of what mistakes I have made, I know that my salvation is sure. Jesus has done for me what I could never do myself. And if you've never experienced that kind of freedom and joy, let today be the day that like David, you cry out and say, forgive me, Jesus, for my sin." I want my sins put on the cross of Jesus, and Lord Jesus, put your perfect spotless righteousness on me. That's all that it takes. I believe, Jesus, that you can save me, and I want you, Jesus, as my Lord. Today can be the day that you experience that kind of grace and mercy, that you experience freedom from your sin. Not that you won't ever struggle again and be tempted or even make mistakes again, but that you know that you have been freed eternally from the guilt of sin. Fourth and finally, as we look at uh, the remaining six verses, this is from verses 13 through 19. Number four, turn to God in repentance and new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn to God in repentance and new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 13, 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David here tells us that repentance is turning away from sin and returning to God. But understand that even the act of repentance on our part, our turning from sin and turning to Jesus, that in itself is a gift of God's mercy. It is one that we cannot do without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But also understand that repentance is necessary. That's why Jesus begins his preaching ministry. The first sentence that he ever preaches is this in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn back to me. And what we see here is that God's work of repentance moves us to praise. It moves us to worship. You know, one of the worst things that happens to us is when we, we find ourselves more and more caught up in sin is when our heart gets harder and we become more bitter, it makes it almost impossible to worship God. And what he's saying here is, God, I've forgotten about your grace, but as I remember your cleansing and your forgiveness, it is moving my heart to return to you. And God, in your grace, would you open up my mouth so that I can praise you freely once again? not just on Sunday morning, but every moment of my life. God's work of repentance moves us to praise, but it also moves us to new life. See here that David wants to get busy undoing the mess that he has made of his life. Healing, bring healing in the life of the victims of his sins, his crimes, and that the wounds that he has inflicted, that by God's mercy there might begin to be healing. That's why he ends this entire prayer by praying for God to do good in his city and that there might be right relationship between God's people and God in the church. The final two verses, 18 and 19, he prays for city and he prays for his church. Forgiveness produces, though, this new obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we obey, not to earn our salvation, simply as a response out of thankfulness for what we see that God has already done in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit's power that awakens us to new life, that enables us to turn from sin, that enables us to change our will, and enables us to live in obedience. And David finally says, you do not delight in sacrifice. You desire a contrite heart. Hosea 6.6 6 catches this same idea. It says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying you're not looking for animal sacrifices because they do not work. You're not looking for self-righteousness and good deeds and good works because they do not work to remove sin and to restore relationship. Only God's chesed, his steadfast, covenant, promised love. And in response to that love, God breaks our hearts gives us contrite or humble, obedient 
hearts. From the beginning of Scripture, God has desired a heart of humility, a heart of faith, a heart that trusts in God's promise of mercy and grace. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, let us reflect on the reality of what Jesus alone has done for us, that his body was broken to save us, that his blood was spilled to save us, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.